Welcome to Machine Learning Unplugged, Episode 2. These are shows where the conversations are much more off the cuff and we don't do any preparation in advance. Well, to be honest, it's against my religion not to do any preparation, but relatively speaking, we don't do as much preparation. Now, we hope this creates a casual yet dynamic dialogue with a different stylistic flair than our formal street talk. So I am Tim Scarf, and we also have Keith Duggar hello, hello. and Wadid Subba as co-interviewers. They almost need no introduction for fans of MLST. Keith, of course, got his PhD from MIT. And Wadlid is the consummate polymath and is extremely well known for shitposting on LinkedIn about what he perceives to be the deep learning runaway train. Now, today, we're going to be leveraging Wadlid's linguistics nous to help us co-interview our guest. So, on that subject... Dr. Guy Emerson is our guest today. Guy is a computational linguist and obtained his PhD from Cambridge University, where he's now a research fellow and lecturer. He models human language, implements those models computationally, and then tests them using real-world data. Guy is also an aficionado of ballroom and Latin dancing, which we'll let him get away with. Uh, Guy, it's an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. I was reading your PhD thesis and your opening line was that your thesis was all about meaning, how to represent it, how to learn it. You said you wanted to shed light on what it means to know a language and to push forward the limits of machine learning. I mean, from a machine learning point of view... A learning algorithm requires an objective. And in the case of language, what should that objective be? You argued that it should be to learn semantic representations that are generally useful, rather than being tied to a specific task. You argued that linguistics clarifies the goal, and machine learning provides the tools. So, Let's talk about distributional semantics. The aim of distributional semantics is to design computational techniques that can automatically learn the meanings of words from a body of text. The twin challenges are how do we represent meaning and how do we learn these representations? We want to learn the meanings of words from a corpus, exploiting the fact that a context of a word tells us something about its meaning. This is known as the distributional hypothesis. It's an idea that you said had its roots in American structuralism and British lexicology, although we'll debate whether the company of words means statistical co-occurrence or logical and type constraints. Many will know the quote often cited from Firth that you know a word well by the company it keeps. Most work on distributional semantics learns a vector space model where the meaning of each word is represented as a point in a high-dimensional vector space. You argued in your 2018 PhD thesis that vector space models cannot capture various aspects of meaning, such as polysemy, which is a Greek word meaning of many senses. So, for example, the word get might mean understand, procure, or become. Anyway, it's so amazing to have you on the show, Guy. Um, you know, you should start by saying hello, but why don't you expand a little bit on your thesis? Because you presented a distributional model which can learn truth conditional semantics. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the thought, and actually, I could just follow up on one point that you mentioned when you said um, people usually cite Harris and Firth about distributional semantics. 
Because I think actually most people who cite them haven't actually read those papers that they're citing. If you go and read Firth, and I did because I thought, I actually want to know what did he actually say about, about meaning. He spends a long time analyzing poetry, actually, <laughs> which is probably not what people were thinking of now if you're training, you know, a huge language model. They're not thinking, oh, can we do a better analysis of a, you know, a particular poet's body of work? But, you know, but that's something that, that Firth was interested in. So I think people, you know, took those ideas as inspiration in terms of modern distributional semantics. In my work, what I was trying to do, and well, what I'm still doing, because I'm still building on that work that I did for my PhD, is to have a truth conditional approach to distributional semantics. So not just learning vectors. Um, and, you know, if you really think about why do we want to learn vectors for everything, and if you look at, you know, um, modern deep learning, you put everything as a vector, right? <laughs> and there are good computational reasons for that in terms of vectors being well-defined, you know, computationally convenient. But if you really want to model meaning, is a vector the right thing to use? And so in my work, I'm trying to look at a, a different approach where we can look at meaning in terms of truth. So we can say, when is a, a word or a sentence true and what is it true of? And characterize meaning in that way. And then to do it in, in a distributional way. So rather than trying to sit down and, you know, write down a theory by hand, actually learn that theory from data, which is really a big challenge. And I think that's a challenge which more traditional linguists um, have not looked at in as much detail. And I think sometimes underestimate the difficulty of actually trying to pin down, you know, what meaning really is when you think about how you can actually learn it from actual data. And so trying to connect those two sides together. So the, the formal truth conditional aspect of semantics with the data-driven distributional approach. Maybe you could, maybe you could talk a little bit about, cause I, I and I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate here. Um, you know, somebody could say, look, you know, Hey, my, uh, my numerical vectors are really probably more appropriately arrays. And I loved how in your, um, your thesis, you spent some time to talk about that kind of confusing yeah. terminology, <laughs> the difference between vectors and computer science versus vectors, yeah, yeah. algebraically, et cetera. So, so kudos to that. But somebody could say, Hey, look, my arrays, you know, they're just real numbers. Um, if, if the machine learning algorithm finds it useful to, to work with probabilities, they could easily be probabilities. So in what sense? Oh, I mean, my model is also probabilistic. So right. on, on that level, I, I definitely agree that, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting a, completely away from, um, from using vectors, using probabilities in my work. I mean, if you look at the details of the model, you know, you can find vectors. Right. Um, but the difference is what is the high level structure of the model? So rather than just saying, okay, we've got vectors in, vectors out, we're going to, you know, fit the data, but then actually what are we trying to learn? So I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to have a model where we have that high level structure, which we can interpret in a ling linguistic way, but then leave the details to the machine learning algorithms. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I wanted you to, to mention there. So, yeah. so really when you say, you know, it's, it's about these you know, truth or these, um, truth conditional functions. Yeah. What yeah. you're saying is that on top of the normal vectors, and I'm going to use that word, you know, loosely the way most <laughs> people on top of the normal vectors, you're imposing some additional structure, some additional constraints, namely exactly, the laws yeah. of probability theory and some comp compositional rules for how yeah. to go from, from truth functionals on words to truth functionals on, on higher structures, sentences, phrases, et cetera. Is that right? I'm hesitant to say truth func functional on words because um, 
what I'm not doing is saying that the input is a sentence and then an output is, you know, a truth or something else like that. And I think a lot of, for example, the, you know, if you look at large language models and that approach to, to language, everything's in terms of, of language, right? You, you've got words that you've observed, you're mm. predicting the next word. Mm -hmm. Everything's in terms of words. In my work, I'm saying that we need to have this distinction between the words and the objects that the words are describing. Okay. And of course, if, if you think that I'm doing distributional semantics, this immediately seems tricky, right? Because we don't actually observe the, the objects, right? We just observe words. So in doing distributional semantics, it becomes quite tricky because the actual entities are all latent. You don't observe those. So it becomes a computational challenge to actually build a model that, you know, that can do that at all. Right. Um, but by having that structure, which is, you know, in, it's a very high level structure in terms of the model, because the details of what actually are we using to represent an entity? How are we actually representing um, the meaning of a word? The details of that, you have to go into the parameters of the model, but the high level structure is in terms of this relationship between words, entities, and truth. Can I say, Guy, that you are, that your main concern is that there aren't so many operations you can do on vectors, right? Is that, is that really the inspiration of this, that you need a richer object? Yeah, that's, that's one way you can put it. The vectors don't really have the kind of structure that we would, that we would want that, to, to talk about lots of logical concepts and compositional right, concepts. Right, they just right. don't, you don't have corresponding um, operations in a vector space. So for example, we know in language we need to do conjunction and negation and all that stuff. Yeah. While, yeah. while all I can do with vectors is similarity. I mean, the, the main, while language composition is more complex, that, that's the inspiration. Yeah. Of, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but uh, the, the thesis is still the same in that words get their meaning from co occurrence, from data. You, you still share that with the mm. traditional, right? Well, I, I, I would say that you can't get 100% of the meaning purely from text. You do need to have some kind of, you know, grounded context as well. So, okay. you know, a purely distributional model is not going to give a complete semantic model because, you, you know, you do need to somehow get that connection to the real world. To, to, to the word. And this is, yeah, where, exactly. this is yeah. where truth comes in, in the traditional yeah. truth, conditional semantics, like something has a meaning if I really understand how the word is well if yeah right. can we can we okay. leave aside grounding for a little bit because i do i definitely want to get into grounding with you a bit later but i think we can stay within the context that wally brought up which is so the distributional learning on text is it do you still believe that it's the case that everything that can be learned from the text so forget about other grounding material but everything that can be learned from the text can be learned by co-occurrence or hmm. are there even longer range, you know, or, or, or less statistical relationships that are going to be missed? Well, I guess it depends a bit on how you're defining co-occurrence. If you just mean co-occurrence in a word window, then I would say, no, that's not going to be enough because you do have, okay. you know, longer distance connections within a text, okay. so right. even within one sentence, right? You can have long distance dependencies within a document. You're going to have, you know, relationships within the text that are maybe less formalized, but as you know, are still there. That latter part, I'm not, I haven't even <laughs> begun to put that in my model. I'm just looking, you know, within one sentence in terms of what I've actually implemented in my work. But, you know, I'm aware of that bigger picture that even looking at the 
you know, syntactic and semantic relations within a sentence is, is not going to be the complete picture in terms of what you could learn from text. Okay. No, no matter how large the corpus. So when it comes to the size of the text, I think here is, is an area where you can see a difference in, um, in research goals between different researchers. So, you know, you see these huge language models being trained now, which are trained on such enormous corpora that it's just, it's orders of magnitude larger than a human's experience in their whole lifetime in terms of the amount of language data. <laughs> oh, much, so, much more. Right, it's orders of magnitude more. And so from the point of view of um, trying to model human language, you could say, well, actually, these huge language models just are not realistic. There's no, they're not going to be able to tell us something about human, how humans learn language, because no human is going to learn from a thousand lifetimes of data, right? So, you know, whether we want to learn, you know, learn models using that size of corpus, that really depends on what your research goals are. And for me, mm. I'm not interested in training these supermassive language models because that is not going to tell me something about human language learning. Well, so maybe since we talked about grounding, I guess we can we can go ahead and, and jump into that. And so just let me try and set this up and you can tell me where, if anywhere I go wrong for our listeners here, which is, so on the one hand, you have this corpus of text and you and you do the distributional learning to learn what you can from that, that corpus of text. As we just discussed, that's not all there is, you know, to, to learning the meaning of those, those words. So for example, as a human being, uh, you know, you learn by somebody saying ball and they're holding a ball in front of you and you see it. And so you have all this other sensory data um, and your observations about the world, which is in your brain is forming this, you know, more composite model of informational um, sources. And so in, in the study of linguistics, the idea, this idea is called grounding, which is let's take the meaning that we have from distributional learning, but we still have to map that somehow to things in the real world or, or whatnot. And that's that's the process of grounding. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so when I was reading your thesis about grounding, I think one thing that really struck me about the way you presented it there, um, and something I'm not a, a big fan of, honestly, is it was presented as like very black and white, very binary. Like if I do, if I do some distributional learning and, and that distributional learning comes up with, let's just say whatever, a set of vectors, concepts, something, another. And then I want to, and then when I want to ground them, I, I want to map that to say real world entities. It was presented in this way that every single distributional concept, 100% has to map to something in the real world. And I don't get why, like, why can't I have a partial mapping? Why can't I have 90% of my distributional concepts mapped to the real world, physical entities, whatever. And then 10% map purely to linguistic concepts themselves. Like, why does it have to be every single distributional feature has to map to a physical one? I guess the question would then, then be what, what is in that 10%? You know, if it's something like a syntactic property, you know, it's just telling you about, um, you know, how the word should combine with other words in terms of, you know, word order or something like that, then I would say that's something you could learn from the from the distributional data, which isn't going to be grounded, right? That's not a semantic property if you have something like word order. But I think all of the semantics should somehow be grounded. Now, it might be in quite an indirect way. I'm not saying that every everything in the semantics needs to be grounded, as in you can directly point to a real-world feature and say, you know, that is the exact feature. Because obviously, then we've got abstract concepts. Right? Yeah, exactly. How do we ground Like this conversation, concept? for example. 
Right. I mean, we're still we're communicating with, with each other, right? And we're not actually pointing to physical things and having this conversation. Right. Um, and I think there are some big questions about what it means to ground an abstract concept. But I think that needs to be something which we have a more positive answer for, rather than just saying, oh, we have some distributional features which are not directly grounded. I think we should have some kind of explanation or some theory of how we can represent abstract concepts in a way that ultimately does connect to the real world. Because, you know, we are, we, humans are entities in the real world. We somehow learn all of our concepts with the real world. How do we build up from, you know, more concrete concepts and eventually get to more abstract concepts? I think that's a, that's a difficult question. I'm not saying I've got the answer to that, but I think that's something we should try to do and, and aim to do. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that it seems quite related to the, um, the binding problem in AI. When we spoke to Jeff Hawkins, he said that um, because uh, all of the cortical cells deal with complete objects, that was how it solved the binding problem rather than having to figure out how all of these low-level primitives are linked to abstract categories. But Walid on chat just said that you, you think it's more related to embodiment. But I agree with the, sorry, uh, Guy, I, I agree with Guy. Whenever we, we talk about grounding and embodiment and, and it has to be connected to physical sensory input, we, we forget a huge part of our linguistic communication, which is abstract concepts. I mean, how, how do you, how do you embody, uh, or ground, uh, friendship or, or the, or the notion of leadership? We know what a leader is, but, uh, do you sense it? Do you observe it? So that that's a huge question that uh, it has to do with emergence, probably what mm. uh, Guy was talking about is how do yeah, we... Yeah, I think it was how, connected to that, yeah. Right. How, how do we, from the primitive physical concepts, how do, how do abstract concepts emerge? Metaphorical mappings or whatever there is in language, we don't know. But. Right, but I think what worried me in, in you know, some parts of your thesis was that, um, for example, if a method, like one let's say one traditional way of grounding was, um, or to try and link distributional learning with, with sensory learning was I do my distributional learning. I get a set of, you know, vector values, concepts, whatever. And then I do sensory learning, you know, whether it's image recognition, who cares? And then I try to find correlations between those, those vectors, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And it said in there, well, you know, we have no guarantee that every single one of our elements of the distributional vector will correlate with, you know, with um, some sensory thing. And I don't think that should be a big concern because, I mean, in point of fact, every single one of them will probably have a non-zero correlation. It may be epsilon, like it may have a correlation of point <laughs> zero 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 one, but I think that that's okay. Like it's okay to have partial, partial grounding because look, you know, and, and you're kind of got some Bayesian concepts in your, in your thesis too. And if you're a Bayesian, you don't worry about that because down the road, you may get some additional data which you can then add into your analysis and you may get stronger, stronger correlations with that new data and those, those other things. So it's all provisional. It's all fractional. It's all partial. Like, why are we worried about methods if they don't give absolute, you know, correlations for every single element with a particular data set? Okay. So I think that's the case. Two, two things I would say to that. One is that if we're just hoping that by having more data, then we're eventually going to be able to correlate it. That it's just, oh, it's just a Bayesian problem. We haven't, we haven't got enough data to infer those extra dimensions of meaning. I think that's a very optimistic that we will eventually be able to find that grounding. Wow, I'm being accused of being an optimist, Tim. Did you hear that? Like, we need to, <laughs> I need to mark this down <laughs> to the listeners. I'm an optimist. 
I mean, I think it's good that you're playing devil's advocate. I think that's it's a good question to ask. But and then the but the other thing I think is that saying that oh we you know we could could be happy not to have everything being correlated. I think is in some sense some sense giving up on trying to have a full theory of what it actually means to right. construct these abstract concepts. Right. And I think a full theory of semantics should be able to explain how abstract concepts connect to concrete concepts. And it's not like there's a you know, a clear distinction. There's going to be all kinds of things in between. So if we talk about, say, the example of friendship, right, mm -hmm. we could, you might be able to observe, you know, people interacting with each other. Um, and then, but then you have to, you know, think about actually, but not just the interaction as it is, but also what are the intentions behind that interaction? You know, what's the, you know, the person's theory of mind and so on. There's kind of a lot of steps you have to go through to go from observing two people interacting with each other to inferring something like, oh, there's some concept of friendship which is useful for understanding or somehow generalizing over the different kinds of human interactions that I observe. Right. And so that whole process of abstraction, I think is going to be quite complicated, but it's something okay. that I think we should try to be able to model. Yep. Yeah. So, so let me just quickly wrap up there and say, fair enough. I, I agree with that. I think, um, um, I just wouldn't want to abandon techniques just because they're necessarily partial while we're while we're still working on a better theory because we may close the door to very useful mm. techniques as was my worry there so i think in terms of um you know is it a partial technique so i cited the also in my thesis um this contrast that alexander collar um points out between bottom-up and top-down approaches in in semantics which has also came mm -hmm. up in his his co-authored paper with emily bender the the octopus paper i think some people refer to it as they have the thought experiment they have in there, where if you have a you know a bottom-up approach to to you know modeling language, you say okay, we have this model that can do something, and then we can add something to it. We can add something to it, and hopefully get more and more and more of um, different phenomena covered by the model. And I think that's the kind of um, you know the prototypical approach that you see in in NLP is okay. Here's my model. Now what can I add to it? But the opposite approach, or the you know, the top-down approach, is to say what is language? What am I trying to model? Now, how can I get a theory that will get me to that end goal? Right, right. You know, what's, big goal. What, what's the linguistic phenomenon I'm trying to explain? And w which brings me to the question, I, I love where this is going, because uh, it, it, when you said NLP, we mean NLP as it's done now, because it it's, wasn't always the case. Oh we, yeah, we, yeah. We, we, <laughs> we we used to study linguistic phenomena and try to explain them, not not bottom up. But uh, and some of, and some of us still do. But it, here's my question: I think the missing elephant in the room here is is all of language learned, or is there some innate part that because mm. because it's related to bottom up and top down? Because yeah, yeah. If if you look at the work of George Lakoff and his metaphorical uh, mappings in language, how we built all this abstract space in language, which is all map metaphorical maps from physical stuff, that whole thing is based on templates. I can't see that they are learned. No matter how many, how how much corpora you, you process, we're not going to learn that the contained in relationship is a transitive relationship. That's not learned. Do you see some innate part to language that it's just not learnable bottom up? It, it's there's some innate structure that we come equipped mm -hmm. with. It's it's I mean like we have a visual system in our brain. 
we have a language module. That's Chomsky's hierarchy, that language yeah. is a biological <laughs> organ. But without being a Chomskyan, I'm not a Chomskyan, but he equates language with vision. In other words, it's biological. We have a language module which is not empty. We don't, we don't come in blank slate and we learn language from bottom up. Uh, children don't learn everything. I think this is somewhere, well, I think this is ultimately an empirical question, right? How much is innate and how much is, is learned? And I think this is somewhere where uh, machine learning approaches can say something interesting scientifically, because if we can say that actually for a very generic class of algorithms, something is learnable, then we don't need to postulate that it's innate, right? We can say, actually, this is just a general, um, a general property which is learnable from the data. And so, for example, say with the, you know, the famous poverty of the stimulus argument, right. you mentioned Chomsky, um, <laughs> this is something where actually, at the time that you know, the poverty of the stimulus argument was first proposed, there weren't really good ways to quantify it. Sorry, can you, can you just introduce that for, for, the, for the audience? So the poverty of the stimulus, so this is the argument that uh, a human child in learning their, their native language or native languages, they don't have enough information in terms of what they actually hear or, or see, right? Their stimulus. Um, their stimulus is too poor for them to actually learn a language and all the richness and, and detail that we observe. In terms of positives and negatives. Yeah. Right. So, the, and this yeah. is also the fact that, you know, the children generally only observe positive examples. Mm -hmm. I mean, some, um, sometimes they are corrected, but, but the sometimes, idea Sometimes, but actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But even actually, empirically, you find that ch children don't respond very well to negative feedback. If you tell a child, oh, you can't say it that way, <laughs> it's actually not a very good way of teaching a child. Um, maybe even adults as well, you know. But anyway, that's a different question. <laughs> but empirically, if we can now test this, right, with, with large um, NLP models and train it on a human-like amount of data, so not the kinds of, you know, one trillion token corpora or something, but, you know, a human amount of data. So, you know, 10 million, 100 million tokens, that kind of size. Uh, and, you know, and no more than that. If you have more than that, you're really going into something which is not realistic for human language acquisition. Um, and you can see that actually there are lots of subtle syntactic effects which are learnable from that amount of data without having to postulate some very strict innate syntactic mechanisms. I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, how far can you push this? You know, you know, what's the scope of, you know, possible phenomena which are learnable or not learnable with different, um, you know, with different machine learning um, models. But I think this is somewhere where now we can approach that in an empirical way and actually quantify, you know, what is possible with or without certain assumptions. I, I think one an interesting way to think about this, though, is um, from an approximation theory point of view. So I know Wally often talks about this pack learnability theorem. So I don't think people are really arguing that any of this stuff is not learnable. It's, it's more a function of how vast it is. So language is accountably infinite space of possibilities. It's huge. And neural networks are literally locality sensitive hashing tables right so there's just a complete disparity between the domain of language and the capacity of your model to learn it would, would you agree with that i feel like people actually often overstate the importance of language being infinite because actually you get really complicated 
you know, interestingly complicated phenomena, just looking at finite lengths of sentences. So I don't think you need to go to infinity to make these kinds of arguments. I agree. I agree. It's not, I mean, the language we probably use is, uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, there's a long tale of, uh, I mean, the infinity is not something we ever probably come across. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but still it's combinatorially. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you can, just and and this is not just on syntax. I mean, if you look at semantics, I mean, with three quantifiers in a sentence, you have uh, three different scope uh, orderings uh, just to just to order the right quantifiers. I mean, the combinatorics are well, huge. It's, forget well, six, infinity. Yeah, six <laughs> three factorial, right? <laughs> but but going back to the poverty of the stimulus argument, although that wasn't the subject at all, but. Because you mentioned we're doing experiments now, which is great. I mean, large language models are an experiment to verify whether, whether Chomsky was right or not. Do children have uh, not enough? Are they impoverished when it comes to enough stimulus? Well, la large language models have told us already that because we're exceeding the number of things a child hears, actually an adult hears in a lifetime, and we can't, we can't resolve references. So obviously that's not how language is learned. I mean, uh, so okay. I, resolving, uh, ob obviously, right. is a strong word, but <laughs> but, <laughs> so, right, so but I would I would say when I when I said that you know there's um, experiments showing that certain phenomena are learnable. I feel like something like a co-reference is a much harder problem because that does tap into world knowledge um, in terms of actually if you have to resolve a pronoun, you know, what is it going to refer to? So I think the kinds of experiments where I think you can show a strong result in terms of what's learnable from a corpus, it's going to be more towards, for example, syntactic things where you, that is much closer to the form, that is much closer to actually what you can directly observe in that kind of data. I think to get more general, um, to look at more general questions like resolving co-reference, I think you do need to bring in world knowledge. I, do think, I think you do need to have some kind of grounded model if you actually want to model how humans do it. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Wally, you and I sometimes sometimes get into this because um, what you've been talking about really is the context of the individual. So, like, is an individual human being learning something ver versus is it already, you know, given to them, encoded in them, whatever. You know, that's one learning context. I also often look at the learning context of, life in general, evolution in general, species in general. And therefore I consider, you know, all the encoding that's in our, in our DNA was learned by that larger process, right? Because, <laughs> because in fact it did, it did evolve. I mean, so I think, um, sometimes this is where it gets a bit, you know, confusing, but I think it's what Guy mm. just said is almost obviously true, which is that text alone. And I know Wally, you make this point all the time text alone is not complete and it isn't just the missing text problem it's like the missing a whole bunch of stuff problem right like you know somebody's holding a ball in front of me and, and moving it around in some complex way to pitch it you know across home plate and baseball or something there's almost virtually no hope that i'm going to ever be able to quantify quantitatively explain that in any amount of text, like it has right. to be almost right. visually visually observed. Uh, when I say it's not all learned, uh, look, the the whatever is in our genetics is probably 
uh, I mean, you, uh, the argument on the other side could be we're trying to simulate uh, millions of years of evolution with learning, so we will yeah, get billion, there, right? billion, yeah, right. But but even with billions, uh, there are things that, and I'm going to get to something that I I discovered just yesterday that a guy wrote, which is of interest to me. Um, the the innateness that I talk about is stuff that we don't learn in the sense that they are given to us one shot. We, we, we don't have a choice to learn them because that's the way they are. So let me, there's an interesting phenomenon in language, and I was pleased to see Guy wrote a paper about that with colleagues on adjective ordering restrictions. It's an amazing phenomenon. I'll tell you why, because it, we well, talked first, about can it. You, can you give an example for the listeners? Because right. it is very so, interesting. So it's very natural for us to say John bought a beautiful red car. We don't say John bought a red beautiful car. And, and the examples are infinite. I mean, you can, it's just, it, it looks awkward if I say it the other way around. And this phenomenon is called adjective ordering restrictions. And apparently it's universal. In other words, it's language agnostic and it's culture agnostic. You know, it's, it's just a, and that, mm. that's what got me interested in it because it told me that problem should shed some light on the inner language, the cognitive aspect mm. of it. Now, it, it's amazing that, I mean, because it, it's universal, it can't be learned individually or mm. unless I'm, so there's some innate aspect to language that is universal. And when we say universal, right there, scientifically, we're saying it's not individually learned. Mm. Well, no, so I, 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 I agree with you on, on that, but it, but it, it's, it was encoded by evolution into people. So for example, yes. Yes. if every single microchip I build interprets integers as big Indian, obviously if I feed it little Indian data, like there's going to be, there's going to be a problem. But I think right. what, I think the point you're making though, is that, 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 and what'd you call it again? Adjective ordering restrictions, restrictions. right? What's, yeah. what's really curious about that is, is is the cognitive kind of kind of uh, mm. you know Aspect insights that that gives you? So if you yeah. two could so, talk about that, it'd be pretty cool. So there's an interesting line of research at the moment, um, which is trying to explain adjective ordering preferences and other kinds of um, ordering phenomenon um, in terms of communicative efficiency. Mm. Now I don't know how, whether this is going to go. It's big Indian, little Indian, right? Well, so it's a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know how far this line of research is going to go. You know, is it going to be able to explain all of the variation? But even if it explains some of the variation, I think that's interesting. That we, if we can explain the fact that you would have a certain order because of um, because of wanting to put something earlier in the sentence, either because it's easier to produce or it's easier for the other person to understand, that could be one way that you can get this kind of phenomenon without it being you know, directly innate or even directly learned. It's something that you, even if, if you learned an unordered language, you might start to produce it in an ordered way. Another way you can try to get this, try to explain this kind of phenomenon um, is in terms of not human evolution, but in terms of language evolution, in terms of how a language gets passed on from generation to generation, and it changes a little bit with each generation. And you can try to model what's a more stable language. So it might be that the language ends up changing into a certain form, which is not necessarily a product of, you know, our, our genes in terms of our innate learning, but it's a, it's a, 
a result of the combination of that with the way that we learn language, the way that we learn it and then pass it down to the next generation. But uh, what, what if, uh, now it's my turn to be a devil's advocate, what if, <laughs> what if there is a, an explanation, right, to this phenomenon across languages that is so systematic, right, and it has to do with some formal mechanism, then, then that would imply innateness, right? Mm. I mean, for example, I'll give you, and I'll send you a paper afterwards. It could be related to some strongly typed structure, ontological structure underneath, that says uh, uh, physical always dominates abstract, and uh, so there's a type system that uh, is consistent with how we do casting and even programming. It's consistent with everything we know in mathematics. So suppose that explains it. That would be amazing, right? That, that language, there's a system underneath, which is a formal system that subconsciously we follow. We, we have mm. no choice. That's my interest in this problem because- Yeah, I think well, it would be very interesting if we, can, if we can shed light on how human cognition works in terms of, you know, if, because it could be that, you know, all of these things are relevant, that we have, you know, some of the ordering preferences come from some deep cognitive, um, you know, some deep cognitive setup in terms of how we naturally, innately conceptualize the world. Some of it could come from um, how language gets passed down generation to generation. Some of it could come from um, trying to be efficient in our communication. And right. yet all of these things are going to play a role. And I think it's going to be an empirical question of trying to work out, you know, how, where do we draw the line? How, how can we quantify the contributions of these different, um, yeah, these different factors? Yeah, but it is it is an interesting line of work, and because I know uh, probably Tim and I may be fans of, of a lot of the free energy, you know, type arguments that life is conducting this this optimization, and so things like efficiency and and uh, error correction, you know, transfer if it, all of that matters, right? Mm. And so so kind of this this ordering, and it, it does get down to and and I and I kind of pick the example randomly, but I'm realizing it's more relevant, you know, as we're continuing to talk, the big Indian versus little Indian and, and CPU architecture has real world um, impl implications, right? In terms of, you know, error correction and specificity, efficiency, yeah. transfer, et cetera. So. I mean, error correction is actually something which um, people have applied to explain, um, for example, word order preferences or um, case marking, things like that, where if right. you hear someone under noise, then ideally you want the language still to be, you know, the message still to be understandable, even if you have some amount of noise. So robustness to noise is one argument that you might prefer a language to have some structure over another structure. Right. Isn't it remarkable, we're, we're talking about linguistics now, but it, it, that there are um, analogies to cognitive science. And we find, even though we're talking to a variety of different people, we're always running into the same ideas, like, you know, uh, logic, for example, and um, epistemology. And, and Keith was saying before the show, apparently there are foundationalists who talk about axiomatic knowledge and, and there's coherentists who think that it's all about the connections and, and the structure. And there are ideas about epiphenomena or, or strong emergence or, or, or reduction. I definitely think that you do get these these interesting connections between you know cognitive science, machine learning, linguistics, and I think that's you know why I'm so interested in the field is because you have these connections right, between right. so many different areas. Well, I mean, do, do you agree with Chomsky that um, language is a system of thought, for example? Oh, um, 
Uh, people are always afraid to give an opinion of Chomsky either way. Yeah, I feel <laughs> like yeah, Chomsky is a, <laughs> right. Chomsky know, is a very... I've been avoiding very, coming um, off mute yeah, to yeah. respond to these. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Chomsky has a very complicated legacy, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> um, and he changed his mind a few times, actually. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't <laughs> Which makes it more difficult Wally. as well. Come on. Um, I would say that um, you know, language is definitely connected to deeply connected to thought, but it's not the same as thought. And there is actually some interesting experiments where you can do things like, um, for example, when people have tried to test the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, so the idea that language influences thought. Um, and this is one of these controversial ideas, because if you right. state it very strongly, it's obviously false. And if you state it very weakly, then it's obviously true. Right. <laughs> so I think the interesting thing is, can we state it in a way which is not trivial, yeah. <laughs> but still says something interesting, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and there are these interesting experiments where you can get people to try to do some task, and you can try to distract them in some way. And you can find that if you distract you know, their linguistic system, so they're having to do another task at the same time as linguistic, then that inhibits a Sapir-Whorf effect. Um, well, if you don't do that, then you do see an effect. So you get these very, you know, subtle effects. Yeah, conflicting. conflicting, yeah. And so from this kind of experiment, you can see that the way that language connects to generative, general cognitive behavior is actually quite complicated because it's deeply tied to some aspects of cognition, but it's not that all aspects of cognition are linguistic. The, yeah, this is what I was going to say. I mean, we obviously think about things that are not linguistic in nature. I mean, when I'm playing chess, I don't, I don't, I'm thinking, but I'm not sure I'm thinking in language. But you do agree that language was the medium of transmitting thoughts. I mean, so for, mm. so it's a subset. It's not. We we think about many other things. Not all thought is linguistic. I agree, but linguistic utterances that we externally transmit come from thoughts. They are an expression yeah, of a yeah. thought. No, I mean, that's Jerry Fodor's language of thought kind of, uh, which is uh, related to Chomsky, but it's even uh, stronger. In other words, language mm. is just an artifact. Yeah. To ex it's a coding scheme to encode externally my thoughts. Right, that, that, that's it. That's another person with a complicated legacy, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and actually, I'm afraid of criticizing Fodor more than Chomsky. <laughs> he, he, so he can be. Can we can we move on to the topic of vagueness? Is that okay? I, I think. Uh, oh yeah, no, this topic. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to talk yeah, about. So actually, you have, you have just... some interesting interesting takes on it. So maybe just give us yeah. a, you know, a one minute synopsis. So vagueness as it's usually defined, is that the, the problem that you don't have clear boundaries for what, um, what words denote. So, for example, something like red. The word red doesn't have a clear cutoff between red and orange or between red and purple. There's some kind of area in between where it can be uncertain whether a particular color is red. So that's an example of vagueness. Um, and so this previous work, so not, not my own work, that has um, analyzed vagueness in terms of a probabilistic approach to meaning. So saying that actually, rather than having a clear, true-false value for every sentence, we could have a probability of a sentence being true. So if I say this is red, there could be some probability that, that that's true. In, 
so more recently, I've been working on vagueness and thinking about it from a more machine learning point of view. And I think actually, if you start to think about learning with real data, and in particular learning with high dimensional data, because high dimensions are really unintuitive. And I think this is somewhere where actually a machine learning approach does say something new and interesting compared to um, classical discussion of vagueness. If you have a really high dimensional space and you're trying to learn a concept like, you know, what is red? Now, even in, okay, for colors, maybe you can describe that in a three-dimensional space, but even in a three-dimensional space, it's interesting, right? You can say, what's the region of this three-dimensional color space, which is red? You could, you know, observe a few points, but if you want to generalize, say, okay, and now I've got a new color that I've observed, is this thing red? The, the higher the dimensional, the higher the dimensionality of the space, the more difficult it is to actually be certain about your generalization to say, actually, is this thing an instance of some concept I've learned before? And the real world is high dimensional. I don't think we can really argue against that. So actually, when we have to learn concepts in a high dimensional space, we're bound to get vagueness because there's just no way that we could observe enough data to really nail down a precise concept. Yeah, it's very similar to the grain of sand. Uh, you know, that you, if, if you put, keep piling up grains oh, of sand, yeah, 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 yeah. at what point does it become yeah. a heap? Or, or when, when do you become yeah, yeah. bored if you keep plucking hairs? Well, that's an ex interesting example, right? Because So let's just take the, the heap example. Um, it's often presented in this way that we can describe a heap in this one-dimensional way, right? A heap is a number of grains of sand. So is, you know, one grain of sand a heap? Okay, no. Is a, you know, it's a thousand grains of sand a heap? Okay, that seems like it could be a heap. But actually, if you think about it, a heap isn't a one-dimensional object. If you think about, actually, we've got these grains of sand, let's even assume that they're all the same you know, shape and size, but how we configure them in a space is going to change whether we call it a heap. If you laid them flat on a table, that's not a heap. Even if it's a million grains of sand, if you lay them flat, that's not a heap. <laughs> right, that's a flat. Uh, right. I you mean, know, I, a beach I, or something. I like the analogy, but let, let's take something like tall. I mean, yeah. tall, tall is... Roughly a one-dimensional kind. I mean, we're talking but about even, even for even for we're, tall, we're talking so about we, height, one dimension. Right. So, okay, height. But what's the what's the height of a building? If you have no, an antenna no, uh, on a building, uh, is that oh that that <laughs> is that okay. part of the height of the building? Now, now we're moving from vagueness to ambiguity. A, a big elephant is not a big ant. No, that, that's vagueness. I thought uh, is a is the vagueness of a predicate on a specific yeah. object. But I think height. It's height itself is is a concept. And I think height, if you try to define height, you have to learn what is height. Actually, height is not something that's given to us in the real world. It's not a direct, we can't directly experience height. We have to learn what height is. If I ask you how tall is a person, you know, it's not just what's their, you know, vertical dimension. If they're lying down, that doesn't make them say, oh, suddenly John is very short now <laughs> because he's lying down, right? That's a ridiculous thing to say. So we, we have to learn a concept of height that means something in a, you know, in terms of what's the height of a person, what's the height of a building actually is a learned concept. So even height, I think is not a one dimensional concept. I think that still requires some amount of generalization ab abstraction. To, to what extent are these um, epiphenomena like, um, you know, red or the, let's, let's use the concept yeah. of running. 
So that is an epi phenomenon, and it's something which emer- I don't know whether it emerges from um, our society or it emerges from somewhere. And now it's got this weird thing. It's a bit like the blockchain. It seems immutable. I mean, you you couldn't change what running means, but it's not a platonic thing, is it? Because running it means many many different things. So it, it seems to be yeah, something yeah. that it's not given to us by the universe. It's something which which has emerged in in in, in humanity. But would you consider that a form of vagueness, or is that different because it can be more distinctly described? You could argue that the platonic ideal of a circle, for example, is is very clearly, from a precision and recall point of view, it's very clearly definable what, what I mean by a circle. Um, but are you talking about vagueness mm. in the sense that it's genuinely difficult? We can come back to mathematical to... concepts in a minute. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, so with something like running, okay, now we have a, I think as a related issue of, of polysemy, polysemy, which is right, then we have different kinds of senses of running, right? right. Um, I think that's a related problem. It's not quite the same thing because you could have, you could have a word. I mean, theoretically, like hypothetically, you could have a word that's polysemous between a number of senses, and then you could ask whether each of those senses is vague. Um, I think they end up being connected because if you actually try to decide, well, actually, what counts as a sense of a word? Right. Then you have a question of how, actually how do you delineate the different senses of a word, and they might start to you know run into each other. Um, so I think they, they are connected in the sense that they, they're both dealing with a question of how to generalize. The, or what's the borderline or what's the demarcation point? That's what's common yeah, between yeah. them, right? So but for polysemy, you have, we have what's the demarcation between, you know, different shades, different, yeah, there's different clusters of usages of a word. So if you have, a, you know, there's a certain cluster of usages of the word running in terms of, you know, physically, you know, going out and. Um, running on your two legs, right? Uh, or, you know, animals running on other numbers of legs. And you've got running errands, you know, a machine that's running. We have these different clusters of usages and we could, you know, think about how do we actually generalize from each of these, you know, these clusters or each even just single examples. There, there's a discrete versus continuous thing as well because with, with red, it feels very continuous. Whereas with an abstract category like um, sour grapes, for example, it might be possible to define another discrete situation that could get attached to that abstract category. Why would an abstract situation be more discrete? Well, so um, in, in the case of running, that, um, because of the yeah. polysemy, there are many completely disjoint situations which can have the same meaning. Mm, but I wouldn't call them completely disjoint. Okay, why not? So I think you do... So if you actually try to you know sit down and write, you know, what's the list of possible senses for a word? And if you look at, you know, what lexicographers do, so people who write dictionaries, there's a famous quote by the lexicographer Sue Atkins, who said, I don't believe in word senses. And, you know, this is someone who writes dictionaries, <laughs> writes word senses, right? So, so she writes word senses, but she doesn't approach it as thinking, oh, there is some list of senses that exists. I just need to find it. Right. right. It's more, what's a useful way of describing the uses that we have? And there's going to be some borderline cases of, you know, is this a separate sense? Is it a, is it a combination of senses? Do we have to make a new sense? Is it a, you know, existing sense? There's going to be these borderline cases. But if you're writing a dictionary for someone to read, you've got to decide what's actually useful to tell someone, here are some different groups of usages of this word, which is something that, because ultimately humans got to read the dictionary. We're not writing it. So what you're saying is the, when we're, when we're defining how many, how polysemous a given uh, word is, 
it's an ad hoc decision. We say at some point, you know what? This shade of meaning, there's no need for it. It's almost like the previous one. That's enough. So people that did yeah, WordNet, yeah. people that did WordNet, actually, they had to make these ad hoc decisions. Like, yeah, yeah. Th these are enough. Seven meanings are enough. Four line, we're done. That's it. Uh, <laughs> we're we're trying to make. We're trying to be too picky by having another shade of meaning. So I, I agree with that. But there's still a difference between how many meanings running has, whether it's polysemous or metaphorical meaning, like the machine is running, and the fact that one sense, not different senses, one sense mm. itself is vague. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I think I think that's what Tim was probably like. Well, the thing is, um, I worry for the simplest because this vagueness problem is very difficult to overcome, right? The ambiguity, mm. not so much, right? Because um, I was going to talk about this. There, isn't it remarkable that human communication is not plagued by ambiguity? Uh, Walid points out in many of his writings that you know human communication is characterized by the so-called missing information problem, which is that you don't say everything that, that you mean. So ambiguity allows humans to increase the transmission efficiency of their language by relying mm, on yeah, colloquial yeah. knowledge and uh, extrapolative local processing on, on the receiving end. You said in your book chapter with Bender that you know a well-constructed grammar should be um, expected to return multiple parses for an ambiguous sentence, but completely different to, to vagueness. I mean, that's something which could be resolved because presumably there was one human thought behind an utterance when you say something. Well, uh, first I want to yep. object to something, which is I don't know why, I mean, maybe it is, but um, vagueness shouldn't be hard for symbolists to deal with right, any more right. than, than curvature why? is hard. Well, because curvature uh, isn't hard for a mathematician to deal with, right? Like in a, in a lot of ways, you know, straightness versus curvature is kind of like... Um, uh, precision versus vagueness. Tim, uh, the, here's a solution for vagueness that was developed by uh, by symbolists like Jerry Hobbs. So, for example, if I say tall, it is a vague concept. Well, who's tall and who's short, and at what point is six five tall? Okay, and and here's one solution that Jerry Hobbs. There's something called typical element, typical instance, right? So someone is tall if they are if their height because every vague concept has a dimension, many dimensions sometimes, like Guy said. Let's let's stick with one dimension for now, Guy, for, for tall. <laughs> so let's say tall is a one-dimensional vagueness kind of problem, height. So someone is tall if their height is greater than or equal to the average height of a typical element. So you, there are ways to deal with it, and it does a good job. I mean, someone is, uh, you know what I mean? Someone is bright if they are smarter than the average IQ person. So we say, so there's a typicality, there's a typical, they call it in cognitive science, prototypical concepts. There's a prototype, right? And if mm -hmm. you're, you're tall, if your height is higher or equal, uh, so there are ways to deal with it. it yeah. I don't know. If so I, if I could add, to, if I could add two things to that. So on the topic of prototypes, I think that's one way that you could um, define a <laughs> kind of in a funny way, a prototypical one sense concept right, right. <laughs> would be that a, a prototypical concept just has, you know, a, a core idea, which is the best example of that. And then right. if you're closer to it, it's a better example of that. Right. A polysemous concept doesn't have a single prototype. Right. That's the difference. Right. right. And so you can have a, a polysemous, a polysemous concept, which you have to describe in, in some way that's more complicated than having a prototype. Now, whether that's of a small, finite number of prototypes, or whether it's something that's altogether, you know, more 
more fuzzy than that. Um, I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, but that's I mean, one way we could think about, you know, what, what does it mean for something to be polysemous? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, and, you know, I, I only, maybe a couple months ago did I, was I told I really needed to research, you know, vagueness more because up until that point, and I think still now, from my perspective, the epistemic kind of viewpoint, which is just to embrace probability, kind of resolves all these problems. Like I don't, I, I mm. still haven't seen yet any good or any convincing for me objection to just understanding that almost all knowledge and, you know, categories, et cetera, are probabilistic. I mean, sure, there are, you know, there are exceptions to that rule and that's fine. You know, we have, we have certain mathematical concepts that are, are quite, you know, uh, well, precise I, and well-defined, but it, it seems to me in your thesis, you know, you've, you've kind of wholesale embraced this probabilistic yeah, yeah. You know, viewpoint as well, not only for vagueness, but other, you know, useful things. And what I thought was really interesting was this, this argument about the dimensionality. And we just, we just produced a, a pretty interesting street talk episode that went in, you know, great depth about the curse of dimensionality and these inevitable problems that you're going to run into in high dimensional use cases where there's just no way in hell, like you're going to have a non vague, you know, boundary somewhere. And so exactly. am I correct that, that you're embracing probability as a solution to this and you don't, you're not aware of any, any real difficulties or are there, are there still remaining philosophical objections and difficulties that you believe are not surmounted? So I would definitely agree that I fully embrace the probabilistic approach. Um, I'm not aware of any serious objections that there, that still remain at that point. Um, I mean, maybe Waleed has got something to uh, to raise. So on the example that he gave of, of, for example, describing tall in terms of having, you know, some reference point that if you're taller than some, you know, the average height, say, then that counts as tall. Um, there is a, a way to express this in a probabilistic way in terms of um, a Bayesian inference of in communication. So if, if, if we say that, okay, tall means taller than some particular reference height, but that height is not fixed, so we have some kind of distribution exactly. for that for right. that threshold. Right. And then the listener then has to infer, well, given what they know about the world and what right. the speaker might be trying to say, can they infer what the meaning is right. based uh, on uh, you're uh, just directly actually, observing that? Actually, that's why tall in, in the Middle East is different from tall in Holland or in Norway. <laughs> right. So, no, no, because because yeah, yeah. you're doing, because the different prior knowledge. suggested, right. You, you have a distribution and you're calculating that real time. So it's, uh, the, the two are related. The, the, there's a distribution, there's a population that you're, yeah. what, what does it mean to say a typical element? Well, you're saying, yeah. this is my data, this is my uh, uh, distribution. That's what a typical yeah. uh, element is, right? So, you know, what's interesting too is that you bring up this, okay, the threshold may have a distribution right? A probabilistic yeah. distribution. And I believe this is original to, um, uh, E.T. Jaynes, you know, and, and who is a big Bayesian and, and obviously communicator of a Bayesian kind of point of view. Uh, and he brought up or, or he created rather this idea of an, what's called an AP distribution, <clears throat> which is it a probability itself can also be probabilistic. So you can have a distribution, a probabilistic distribution of a, of a probability. And he gives this great example of, you know, consider, for example, if, if somebody's flipping a coin, okay, and you're asking yourself, what's the probability that it's going to come up heads, 
okay, and, and you flip it, you know, five times and it comes up heads five times in a row, you still really wouldn't change your, your, uh, your distribution that much. You would still guess that you just got unlucky and the coin is probably still fair just based on all the strong evidence you have that coins usually come up half heads, half tails. On the other hand, consider the proposition that there's life on Mars. Okay. If we come back and we launch a satellite or a probe up there and it lands and it finds something that is pretty much unambiguously, you know, bacteria, you're immediately going to decide, okay, there's life on Mars. Even though both propositions in the beginning were kind of 50-50, you know, you might be 50-50 on whether there's life on Mars, 50-50 as to whether it comes up heads. You're much more certain about the heads than you are about Mars. And as soon as you get some new data, you'll, you'll radically change your view on Mars. So I think when you fully embrace kind of probability in this Bayesian perspective, a lot of things in the world make much more sense. And you stop worrying about yeah. like is tall six feet or, or six feet, four inches. Like, I don't know. I mean, you, you get this new mathematics that lets you handle all this in a uniform way. Yeah. I think that example shows the importance of hierarchical probabilistic modeling. So it's not just, we have, you know, one random variable that we are observing, like say whether the coin comes up heads or tails, but there's a, a hierarchy of random variables. So there's is the coin fair in the first place? And then based on that, um, that value, we can then decide what's the probability of a particular throw coming up heads or tails. This is interesting because I think there's a qualitative aspect to this, not a quantitative uh, aspect. I mean, the, the example of Mars, the indication I have is qualitatively different. It's not a quantitative issue. So I don't know if it's just a question of, uh, probabilities all the way down. There, there's well, the AP distribution gives you a way of quantifying that qualitative, the qual the qualitative, that qualitative oh, okay. like concept, which was, you know, it gives you a mathematics that captures that that difference. You know, the person who starts off mm -hmm. at the beginning and says, "I'm fifty fifty on Mars and fifty fifty on heads," but I have very different beliefs in those two things. This can capture. Okay, that. so we're we're back to the belief, uh, right? But. I don't know how that is related to vagueness. Well, vagueness Say, would be that that you know if I have if I have a category or two categories, whatever, that whether or not an object is that category is a probability. It's not a zero or one assessment. It's that you know there's a fifty percent chance that I'm tall, and and so as Guy brought up, you know if somebody had a certain prior context and they were evaluating, right. oh, he said that John is tall. I wonder how tall he is. You know, they would have a yeah, probability but, but, uh, distribution on that. I, I think we're, I don't know if we're missing something here. Nobody doubts that there are vague, uncertain, un imprecise concepts. Nobody ever doubts, anybody does, even symbolists don't doubt that. I mean, right. tall is a vague concept. No, nobody doubts that. The issue is, do we have to defuzzify at some point? So I'll, I'll give you an example. <laughs> so, and they studied this. Fuzzy logic is unsound at some point at the highest level. If I say, uh, John likes every famous actress, Liz is a famous actress, right? I, at that point, John loves Liz by, by deduction, regardless of how, of how famous she is. At that point, I have to say she's famous. It becomes a binary decision. Otherwise, you can't make inferences. So the point is not about, nobody doubts vagueness or uncertainty. 
the point is you need a higher level of reasoning where you have to collapse the fuzziness at some point. Mm. There's a fork. I, I, don't, I, don't, the, I, dis I disagree. So Bayesian would just continue working with probability distributions from start to finish. They would never, ever put in a threshold or discretize until it reaches a decision point. So decision, as soon as, right. Okay, but decision theory is kind of a whole separate, you know, category, right? That's no, like I've got, I've got my knowledge, which is represented by probabilities. Now I need to decide an action and I can only right. take one action or okay, whatever. Okay, so here's an interesting, this does come to an interesting point in terms of how can we formalize a probabilistic logic. Right. Because actually there are it's different ways done, that but it's can, already done and it's no, probability there's, there's, theory. There's different. <laughs> there no, there are when, different approaches. The, yeah. the, the difficult thing is not just when we have a small number of variables, but we want, when, when we want to have probabilities for logical propositions, there are different ways that you can bring in the probabilities. And depending on how you do it, it might look more or less paradoxical in terms of making inferences like the, the, the example that Waleed just gave of, um, but if John loves every famous actress, Liz is a famous actress. Right, if we want to do that inference, how do we set up the, the probabilistic logic so that we can actually get an answer out for that question? Right. That's, that's the trick. I mean, obviously, you can deduce that John must love Liz. How do you make the calculus work so that you can yeah. make that inference? Right. And what's interesting is actually that, um, so one benefit of fuzzy logic compared to a probabilistic logic is that combining, so doing inferences is really easy. You just do it on a, a truth functional level. So for example, logical and logical or, we just have a fuzzy logic version of that. It's very easy to push it through. With probabilities, it actually gets very tricky because if you start thinking about the joint distribution of all the different logical propositions you could have, this just becomes completely <laughs> intractable very, very quickly. Right, belief networks try to do that, but yeah. Well, you know, you know the, the, only, the only problem with probabilistic graphical models is you have to design the bloody things. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, the, so this is an interesting thing that I found in, in, in my work, is that if you do want to set up a probabilistic logic and you want to scale it up so that you can deal with, you know, um, sentences that humans actually use in practice, you start to get completely intractable models. No, I, I do want to just slightly object to something, which is, so first yeah. of all, um, there is only one mathematically sound generalization of logic, and that is probability theory. Now, as you point out, like it does create these intractable problems, and so all these other fuzzy logics are hacks, okay? They're just, they're hacks on the one true sound probability theory to try to come up with things that are more tractable, but that's why they run into these consistency problems, paradoxes, yada, yada. So I do want to just set that goalpost, which is, look, we have the one true mathematical solution to this and all probability theories are uh, isomorphic, you know, to the one that we're familiar with, which is conditional probability theory with the sum and product rule and probability right, so bounded to zero I agree and with one. That, I agree with that part. Um, but the question is still, if we want to, if we have a, so just to make it more concrete, if we define a logical language, so we have our, all the logical symbols we want to use in the language, the syntactic rules for combining them. So we have our set of logical propositions. And for each logical proposition, we have a uh, true or false value. And so now we have to define a joint distribution over all combinations of truth values. And so that's the, that's the, the goal. And the question is, can we do that in a feasible way? Well, so, so look, 
So there is the one true way to do it, which is the sum and product. This is, I mean, this, pro- this is, this is, so, but I, I did, I did just want to make it clear for the listeners, which is now we're talking about how can we actually engineer something that we can do in practice. And I'm a hundred percent on board with you, which is that's, it's an attractable problem. It's very difficult. People come up with, you know, different solutions to it, but I just want to quell the idea that we don't have a lot, you know, a consistent mathematical yeah, framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not true. We, we don't have a consistent set of hacked rules that we can actually compute. Right. I mean, for me, for me, look, nobody is questioning that probability theory is a sound mathematical uh, framework. Okay. Because okay. it agrees, because cool. it agrees, be- no, because it agrees with logic. It's a generalization. It agrees with set theory and uh, uh, all of that. I mean, and is an intersection. All these things are consistent. The Probability theory is a valid science. Nobody's doubting. The issue is not this. The issue is, can we use it to model human-type reasoning with uh, uh, without getting into funny stuff? Because well, no, people, no, so are, I, people, that, people have worked on in, that. Right. You're not going right. to get into funny stuff, but you may get into things you can't compute. So if you want to say, can we use it to tractably model then I would say, okay, I get you. That's difficult and right, so the, But this is where, so this is um, somewhere where I think there are interesting things that we get if we try to think about the tractability. Um, because if we look at, for example, uh, quantified expressions like, you know, every, if you say, you know, every mammal has four legs or, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, yeah, it's not, that one's not true if you say, you know, say humans have two legs. If you have every you know every x is a y or some x is a y trying to do this quantification if we have a probabilistic logic becomes very very expensive right especially if if not only do you have to do this quantification but if every single um x and y you have to consider has a vague concept behind it so you've got a probability of everything being an x and a probability of everything being a y how do we actually do this quantification becomes very very expensive understood yeah so if you then take generic sentences so not every x is a y but something like birds fly where there's or ducks lay eggs where there's no overt quantifier now these kinds of sentences have this weird what seems like a weird paradox in that you have on the one hand they seem much harder to define in a formal logic like if you say every duck lays eggs we can say oh we can exactly know how to compute whether that's true or false. If you just say ducks lay eggs, how does that mean every duck lays eggs or some ducks lay eggs or um, most ducks lay eggs? And actually, if you think about it, you realize, well, hang on, actually male ducks don't lay eggs and you know baby ducklings don't lay eggs. So actually it's a minority of ducks that lay eggs. And yet somehow it's completely natural to say ducks lay eggs. And so somehow we have this, this weird what seems like a paradox between on the one hand, it's harder to define what it means precisely. And on, on the other, they're much more natural in terms of children pick up generic sentences much earlier than um, explicit quantifiers. Adults process generics much faster than explicit quantifiers. But this makes sense if you have a probabilistic logic where they're actually computationally simpler to calculate, where you don't have to do this very expensive um, calculation marginalizing out a huge number of random variables. And actually you hmm. can have a much simpler calculation for a generic sentence. And so this is where it does matter how you set up the, the logic, because we're going away from a classical logic. We're saying that actually this doesn't correspond to, um, a, a classical quantifier like for all, or there exists. 
Right. Yeah. And that's, that's probably why, you know, it was probably similar efficiency considerations that caused the brain to develop in such a way that it has all these cognitive biases and, and, you know, mm. kind of errors of reasoning that, that happen, you know, perhaps. Yeah. Although the question is whether when you go all the way down to the base layer, that there is actually a solid semantic foundation or, or, or whether that fuzziness remains uh, on, on the subject of this i wanted to talk a little bit about grammar engineering uh, because we've been talking yeah. a lot about you know vectors and distributional semantics and stuff like that and, and i know I'm, I'm talking to a linguist here and, and you're, you're interested in in much richer uh, data structures so um a couple of questions about your long tail of large-scale grammars uh, which you spoke about in your recent book chapter with professor um, emily bender last year uh, it was called computational linguistics and grammar engineering so you illust illustrated the um the landscape of computational work in head-driven phrase structure grammars, which is a bit of a mouthful. So these are generative grammars. They're used as <laughs> yes, it is. indeed they're, they're used as rich data structures to represent syntactic language. They have a rich type hierarchy, which you thought would make them very robust over time. And you, you said in the book chapter that you appreciated the clear separation of the formalism from the overarching linguistic theory and the ability for the formalism to model what what we're going to call long tail peripheral phenomena as well as core phenomena. So most implemented grammars are built with the goal of handling naturally occurring text, which means they'll be able to handle a wide variety of linguistic phenomena that are not always treated in the theoretical syntactic work. So can you give us a little bit of background? Well, and, and, and specifically, if you wouldn't mind, so I'm familiar with, you know, the context-free grammar, whatever that you might learn, like in a CS course. Can you just mm. explain what exactly the relationship to that in a head-driven phrase structure grammar is? Yeah, so head-driven phrase structure grammar uses a, a typed feature structure of formalism. And so as, you, as Tim just mentioned, the, so the formalism itself is Turing complete. So you could, in principle, write a grammar which could calculate you know, any computable language. Okay, so it's a, larger, practice, it's a larger class than CFGs. And, and yes, even, yes, definitely. And so is it context-sensitive as well? Or? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's Turing complete. In, in the, the full formalism is Turing complete. Yeah. But in practice, you're not going to use the full Turing completeness. I mean, I think it would be a bad idea to, <laughs> to try to use the full Turing completeness. Um, so this is that distinction between what's in the formalism and what is actually in a particular grammar right. if you're trying to you know, model a, a particular language. Um, so the way that the, the formalism is, is defined, rather than having... Um, so say if you're familiar with the CFG, you have atomic... Categories. So if you have each node in the in the tree, it's just a single category. And that's a context-free grammar. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of context-free grammar. Yep. If instead of having a single atomic category, as you have in a context-free grammar, if you have a, a structured object, so you have a number of features, and each of those features has a value, and the value is itself another, it could be another structure with its own features and its own values. So um, what you actually have is uh, it's a directed acyclic graph where each node is has a some type and each edge has a feature and so you have this richer structure to represent each node in that um, phrase structure tree so that's the the so it's head driven phrase structure grammar so we're still using this phrase structure so we can have a tree but then each node is not just a single atomic object but it is this um, feature structure Right, so each node isn't isn't a token. It's a it's a more complex structure. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah, um, and by using this more complex structure, this is useful even if you you know you don't have to go to the full Turing completeness to to you to see the usefulness of 
of this. Um, it's useful, for example, if you want to decompose something, um, for example, if you want to look at a verb in terms of its, um, it's got a, a tense and a, um, it has to agree with the, it has to agree with the subject, um, in terms of its, um, person and number, um, the verb might have a certain number of objects. So you have all this kind of structure, which you can then specify in a more independent way, rather than just saying, oh, well, we have a, a one, um, you know, one non-terminal node, which is just has a specific category, which has to encode all the information. We can break it up into these smaller parts. And so even if you have a, a if you, even if you wanted to describe a context-free language, you could do it using this more, um, you know, this richer formalism so that you could have a much simpler grammar to describe exactly the same language, even though it's a context-free grammar. Um, Interesting. You can describe it in a much more efficient way. And so from a linguistic, from a linguistic point of view, you know, you can state generalizations more easily. So for example, if anyone's ever looked at the grammars for programming languages, you know, they, they sort of have to introduce all these kind of hacked intermediate, you know, tokens, which can then expand into something that, that would kind of be collapsed into a more efficient way um, to represent kind of branching alternatives rather than kind of hacking all these intermediate nodes. Is it something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I mean, one one of the things here is is we want to have a, a rich and structured way to represent semantic meaning in in language, and and you talk about this really interesting long tail phenomenon of of mm. um, linguistic phenomena, I suppose. So it's it's very similar. Um, in in neural networks, we also have this long tail, and most of the capacity in a neural network is wasted learning the kind of the low frequency attributes, which are the things that hardly ever come up because they're just really weird. But you said that when working with actual data and large scale grammars, it quickly becomes apparent just how long this long tail of peripheral yeah, phenomena. Yeah, yeah. So you gave this really interesting example um, to, just to bring it to life. You said, um, it is incumbent on you to speak plainly. And you said it was an example of a low frequency type which requires an expletive it subject, an obligatory up on prepositional phrase complement, an infinitival verb phrase complement, which establishes a control relation between the object of on and the verb phrase's missing subject. So that's just one example of this linguistic template. I mean, how many are there? How can we reason about this? <laughs> I mean, these these are really, there's a lot of these templates. Um, so I have to say that this isn't an example that I came up with myself. So th this was um, from the English resource grammar, um, which has been developed over many years now. The the person who's had the most, um, you know, the, I guess the, the main architect of the grammar is uh, Dan Flickinger. And so Emily Bender's worked with him for um, for many years. I, so I was the kind of the, you know, the junior author in this paper with Emily. Um, but that example sort of shows the, the, the vast diversity in, in, um, what's called argument structure. So how the, how a verb can combine with its different arguments. And so you might in an introductory course learn that, okay, a, a verb could be intransitive or transitive or ditransitive. And you have a few examples of these. So then you could write, you know, a, a context-free grammar that has these different, different verbal types. Um, and this would cover a lot of examples. You know, you can get a long way with um, a relatively small number of different um, what are called subcategorization frames. So the how it how how a verb can combine with its different arguments. Um, but actually, when you look at a, a big corpus, and linguists are often interested in that long tail. You know, they're not they're not happy to just get oh we know the we've covered ninety five percent of the sentences. Actually, we'd want to cover it as much as we can. Um, 
And if you look at this long tail and you find examples like it is incumbent upon you to speak plainly, um, that actually this has a very specific requirement in terms of what it combines with. And so if you want to write a, a large scale grammar, and so the English resource grammar is a very large scale grammar, there are, I mean, I don't know exactly how many types there are, but I mean, it's a huge number of types in the grammar to be able to cover all these different um, types of verb that you observe in practice. Okay, that, that's fascinating because um, what I love about this as a computer scientist is that the, the deep learning approach is very much a black box. And this is a very principled way of going about doing it. But you do say, though, that you can still apply probabilistic approaches almost um, as, as a second pass. So there are many mm. um, ambiguous pass trees that might come from such a grammar. And then you, you, you can start to apply some supervised learning and, and so on, on on that second stage. So do you think that that yeah, is yeah. the way forward? I think that's part of the way forward. I think, you know, in the, in the long term, it would be great if we had a way to induce this kind of grammar rather than having to sit down and, you know, write all the rules by hand. You know, the reason that, you know, that, that this has been done is because it's really difficult to induce the rules in a way that's precise enough that actually it does it what we want it to. Um, there is work on trying to induce grammars in a, you know, a more principled way. So not just, a um, you know, a large language model, but in a way that actually we can say very precisely what's the kind of structure we have in a way that you have very, very clear generalizations, very clear predictions about what is uh, grammatical or ungrammatical. And you might argue, okay, maybe there are some cases where we don't want to have a exactly binary prediction, but, um, but still to have a, a, a model where we can have this very clear structure, uh, I think in the long run, it would be great to and there's ongoing work on trying to induce this kind of thing. Um, so for example, taking the grammar as a starting point, um, we could say, well, can we have a model that can produce these structures without having to use exactly the, um, the typed feature structures that I mentioned before? Do we, do we have to use exactly that structure in order to derive the semantic structures that the grammar produces, or can we derive them in a different way? So there's, there's work, for example, on using um, hyper ridge replacement grammars, which is a, it's a, you know, a fancy ex kind of expanded version of trying to use, um, uh, graphs instead of having, um, rather than working with trees, we can work with graphs, um, and are trying to use, you know, other approaches that might be able to derive the same kinds of, um, relations that the grammar produces. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, cause I'm just, just reading uh, some notes you actually quoted. Um, there was a paper in 2002 by, uh, uh Tortanova that said on, on the ambiguity thing, roughly half of the ambiguity in the Redwoods tree bank was lexical and the other half was, was syntactic. And uh, apparently they were showing that combining the semantic and syntactic information was useful for, for reducing the ambiguity. But I, 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 I'm just trying to get my head around just how much of a big problem this is, because there's there's the ambiguity problem. We were talking earlier about the um, possibly the, the combinatorial. I don't know whether you'd prefer to use the word mm. combinatorial or, or, or infinite blow up of, of language. But as I say, there's a lot of structure to it. There's a long tail. Yeah, there's yeah. so much structure to it. So it, there must be a route out of this. Yeah, and I think that's um, somewhere where we kind of have to rely on computational techniques because it because it is combinatorial. It's just really difficult to do this kind of work on with you know with pen and paper. Um, you just miss so much of the the possible predictions that the model would make. Um, but I think it's also interesting, you know, when you bring in this 
you know, when you bring in a machine learning perspective, because if you think about the structure in terms of how can we generalize, right? Because this is always generalizing to, you know, to new sentences. So if we have a training data of, you know, sentences we've seen and we've got some parses for them, we want to generalize to a new sentence. So we have that machine learning problem. And so I think we do have this interesting connection between the, the learning problem and the, the structure that we want to learn. And, and final question. So um, there are loads of folks on LinkedIn now that are saying they are NLP experts and they're, they're using models which, are, which they probably don't understand and they're, and they're trained to do a specific task very well. Um, do, what do, what's, your, what's your view on that? Do, do you think that it's, um, it's something that we should be concerned about? I mean, I'm not on LinkedIn myself, so it's one of, you know, first-hand experience of what people are saying. Um, I mean, there's definitely a huge growth in the field. I think there is a potential danger in terms of whether people understand the, in terms of applying it in practice, whether people understand, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of these models? Because there's definitely huge improvements that have been made, you know, with these, say, large language models. I haven't you know, we haven't talked about them that much in this. I mean, little bit we've talked about them, but not that much in this um, in this conversation. Um, because, you know, I've been talking more about, you know, how to model human language use, human language acquisition. If we're trying to think about practical tasks where we don't actually necessarily need to worry about, you know, how humans do do something with language, but we want to just build a system that can do something. Then I think it's we need to be really careful about questions which are not necessarily technical questions like how do we apply the hugging face library or you know how do you train the model but actually questions about methodology you know how, do you, are you certain about what the model is actually capable of error analysis questions of what's the transparency of the model you know fairness what are the kinds of predictions the model is going to make and how is that going to have a, a real world impact i think it's good there's there's more discussion in the in the community now about questions like transparency and and fairness um but those are questions which are, you know, they're not purely technical questions. I think Kate Crawford put it very well when she said that bias is a social issue first and mm -hmm. a technical issue second. Um, and I think the danger is if people are too confident in what they know and aren't aware of the bigger picture, you know, in terms of the machine learning aspect, if you know how to apply the hugging face library and train a system that can, you know, get a high score on whatever task you're doing. That's a little piece in a much bigger picture of, well, where did the data come from? What are the, you know, do you really understand your data? Um, what is it, what's the system actually going to be used for after that? What's the impact of that? What's the ways that it could go wrong? Because, you know, every system is going to go wrong at some point. Um, and these aren't purely technical questions. So I think we do need to be, you know, humble enough to recognize when we do need to, you know, talk to people outside of NLP and actually understand What's the wider context of that? As you alluded to, these are very difficult questions. And in fact, there's a lot of vagueness, you know, built into them, built in them as well. You know, I mean, uh, like what is bias can even be a vague or very difficult to pin yeah, down yeah. and define, you know, concept. Oh, it's very difficult. In, right. Um, so, I mean, which is, you know, which is why I think, you know, we need to be, we need to be careful when, if someone you know, self-proclaims to be an NLP expert and then says that they, you know, know exactly what the model does and, um, oh, it's not biased because, you know, I, I didn't program it to be biased or so, so something stupid like that, um, where actually there's a, there's a much bigger picture there that you need to be aware of. 
Yeah, I mean, this is now you know straying outside of my own research because you know my 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 core research is much more on the linguistic side rather than the, the applied side. But you well, know, I, mean, I think as a field, we need to be aware of the bigger picture. Well, I think um, to be honest with you, um, I take a little bit of a different take, which is that I think these questions are so difficult and complex. They're really a a field of study and a science like on their own, and mm, I and I'm doubtful mm. that a person who may legitimately be an expert in NLP. Um, I'm doubtful that they actually, that a human being, a typical human being has time to, to develop the expertise necessary to evaluate their, their work in that broader context. Like, I think what's going to happen in the future <clears throat> is we're going to go, like, for example, I don't, I don't do my own legal advice. I go to a, an attorney when I need legal advice. Right. And I probably shouldn't even be doing my own tax accounting. I should probably have a, you know, an accountant doing that. Although TurboTax, you know, helps a lot. I think what we're going to have is a profession and tool sets that make it easier for people to evaluate the impact of their work or potential, you know, pitfalls and maybe say, Hey, like, um, you know, university, can you please submit this experimental design for, you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, AI ethics review or, or something, because, because based on this tool, like, I'm not sure that there might be, you know, problems with this data set. And then they could come back to you. Now, hopefully this doesn't devolve into some type of like, you know, ultra bureaucratic, like can't mm. allow any progress, <laughs> agenda driven, <clears throat> you know, sort of nonsense, um, but but stays more as like a a science and an engineering and, a, you know, and a mathematical and, and, a, and, a, and an objective kind of policy, you know, method. Yeah, I, th I think that's the concern that it might become a form of gatekeeping or, you know, there was a clerical. And it's a legitimate concern. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But by the same token, I mean, no one understands how their computer works. And um, I mean, I, I love Kate Crawford. I'd love, I'd love to um, get her on, on the show to talk about her book. But um, is it reasonable to expect an engineer to be that much of an expert? And, yeah, and I then so. I, I completely agree with Keith that, that, that we should have guardrails and we should have um, operating frameworks around doing all of this stuff. But, and tools. But, but no yeah. one knows how these bloody models work. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a big problem. <laughs> well, that that gets into the whole, uh, you know, co conversation around how to make these things understandable. <laughs> and there's mm, a line mm. at which uh, I think in one of our videos I said something like, "It seems a bit strange that we're building mathematical models to understand mathematical models." You know, we kind of get into this circular problem where the understandable AI feature sets are more difficult to understand I know. as difficult to understand as the, as the starting ones, you know? I know. Yeah, I, yeah, I made yeah. a video on Lyman Shap with uh, Connor, one of the data scientists at work. And, um, yeah, it, it's almost harder to explain how they work than the underlying <laughs> model. <laughs> um, and anyway, um, Guy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute honor to have you on. Oh, thank you yeah, for really the invitation. Guy, guy, Thank you, this Wally. was a pleasure. I really enjoyed yes, it. Yes, likewise. Uh, it's an honor to meet you. Okay, guys, awesome. chat later. Thanks so Have much, Wally. Wally.